This podcast was prepared by Ashley and Martell in her personal capacity. The opinions expressed in this show are the host's own and do not reflect the views of any of their personal affiliations. Political Millennials. Episode 29. 29. We are back with another episode in this whew, 2021 spring primary in Pennsylvania. And we are super excited to bring you this episode. Uh, this is your girl, Ashley. And you got Pierre Defecto, also known as Martel, or not also known as, but I'm Martel, and I'm also known <laughs> as Pierre Defecto. What's up? <laughs> what is up? And we have a special guest with us for this episode. Yes. Uh, one of our huge races in Allegheny County, our Court of Common Pleas. And we have the one and only Tiffany Sizemore here today. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you um, for the endorsement. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are so welcome. We are so excited for you to be here. This is definitely one of the episodes we could not wait to uh, schedule yes. and get out here for the people. Um, so. Uh, I guess I introduced Tiffany, just a little bit about her. Currently, uh, she is a full-time professor at Duquesne Law. Um, Tiffany, y'all, she is busy on this work when we're talking about school-to-prison pipeline. We've had some form, some previous uh, school board candidates on the episodes before this. So uh, we really want to bring to you all the connection that all of these different elected positions have um, for us and in our communities. And on top of that, y'all, Tiffany is just dope. So we're super excited to talk with her today and tell you all a little bit about what this race means. So um, Tiffany, we could talk about you all day as we've been doing, but let the people know who are you, what are you about um, and why you're running. All right, so uh, my name, as we talked about, is Tiffany. I'm from uh, Pittsburgh, born and raised from the, on the east side. Um, I'm from Larmer, Meadow Street. Um, the house where I grew up in is still standing. Um, and I am uh, a 2004 graduate of Howard University School of Law. Hey, <laughs> you know, um, I graduated uh, high school in 95 and I left Pittsburgh for a while to, um, I've talked before on the campaign trail about the fact that I, um, you know, grew up in the city as a teenager during the wild, wild west of the 90s in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, I needed to get away. I didn't feel like, um, I didn't know if my survival was possible here. So I needed to get away. And um, so I went to, to undergrad in Ohio and then law school. And I ended up living in DC for a while before moving back home in 2012. Um, and so my career really has been as a public defender, um, both in Washington, D.C., here in Allegheny County. Um, and now I'm not technically a public defender anymore. I'm a, I'm a, um, a clinical law professor at Duquesne Law School who operates a clinic helping young people um, in delinquency matters and in school matters. But the work that I do is very similar to the work that I've done for my entire career as a public defender. I represent young people at no cost. Um, I represent parents and um, kids in school matters for no cost. 
And, um, you know, we don't, other than being income qualified, we don't turn anybody away from the clinic. Um, that is the only real um, limitation that we have um, is that you have to make below a certain amount to qualify for our services. Other than that, if you come in the door, we're not going to turn you away. Um, this work is so important. Um, and so what brought me to the race um, was a little bit about what we were talking about before we started recording, which is that um, this is such a unique opportunity for our county to change the way justice looks for a generation. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about um, how some of these different races, not just judge, but school board and county council and all of these different things can have synergy. But we have so many amazing opportunities on May 18th to change the way our county looks um, in terms of elected officials, to change the way it feels for the community and to change the outcomes that we can have. Um, and so I felt like I could not be a observer this round. I felt like I needed to get in and really stand up for the things that matters. We've really talked about three things during our campaign. First and foremost um, is making sure that all voices are heard. We, if elected, my courtroom will not be a courtroom where only the voices of law enforcement and prosecutors are centered, but all voices will be centered. All voices will be given credibility. For far too long, I've seen mothers and grandmothers shouted down, ignored, and marginalized in courtrooms, and we can no longer have the village um, not be a part of the processes that happen in court, especially to our young people. Second of all, we've talked about using racial uh, data and science to reduce racial and ethnic disparities. There is data locally, there is data statewide, and there is data nationally that tells us that court systems treat people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQIA plus people differently. Um, and that their ability to receive justice in our court systems has been um, essentially uh, taken away for the most part. And we also have data that tells us how we can change that. Um, and so um, this is not about a feeling, it's not about a political ideology, it's about being an intellectual and using the data to reduce racial and ethnic disparities, to reduce um, other types of marginalization. Um, and third, we've talked about bringing dignity and compassion um, to our courtrooms and to the courthouse, making sure that all services and facilities are accessible to everyone. And so those are the things that matter to me. Those are the things that I've seen us lacking in as an advocate, and that's the reason I'm in the race. Sorry, that was long. <laughs> that was yeah, perfect. That was perfect, right. right. I mean, Martel, I think I say this on all of our episodes, like talking to candidates who have an understanding of the lack of humanization of people when we're mm -hmm. dealing with our criminal justice system, um, even using the word criminal justice, you know, it's, it's missing. Right. And um, just because someone has made bad decisions doesn't mean that they don't deserve to have um, respect. And, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I just, y'all vote for Tiffany. That's what I said. <laughs> Definitely vote for I, Tiffany. <laughs> no question. No question. Number five on your ballot. <laughs> Number five. And that's good. That's really good uh, ballot positioning too. That's 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 really good. I um I wanted to kind of talk about some of your experiences as a public defender in DC, um, because I when we talk about 
root causes, right? We have to, if we, if we're going to try to really focus on the justice, you got to get the root causes. And um, just having experience in DC, you know, I spent summers in DC going to school there. I see, I see how young people from the district can find themselves in this criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just want to just you talk a little bit more about your experience in D.C., you know, if there's particular, you know, systems or things that you identified, any kind of institutional things. But, um, you know, I definitely want you to spend some time on that so people can really understand, like, your experience, um, necessary experience to, to, you know, when it comes to being a judge. So D.C. was is my other home, um, as my um, babe likes to say, oh, your beloved D.C. It is my beloved D.C. <laughs> um, I'm a Pittsburgh girl born and raised. And the thing that's so funny is when I first moved back here um, and I, I came back and I was running the juvenile division in the Allegheny County Public Defender. That was my position there. And people used to say, oh, this girl from D.C. And I'm like, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. But the funny thing is, (laughs) if you go ask my D.C. friends, like, what's one thing you know about Tiffany? They'll say, oh, we know she's from Pittsburgh. Like, we got it. Right. So (laughs) it's sort of weird to be treated like a stranger in your own home. But I do love D.C. very much. And um, I you know, DC, I, you know, I worked at the public defender service. There is absolutely the best office in the country for lots of reasons, including its training model, its funding, it pays on parity for prosecutors with um, prosecutors, but DC has a lot of, you know, deep, obviously, um, issues around racial and ethnic disparities in terms of who they prosecute, how they prosecute, um, who they send to federal court versus who they keep in local court. I mean, it has many of the same problems that plague the rest of the country. Um, And um, I wouldn't tell people to read the book, Locking Up Their Own, um, Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman. Um, He was a public defender there for a long time. He won, I think he won the Pulitzer in 2019 for the book, but it's really about the history of um, Black folks in DC and how we uh, have a Black city um, and still end up with a completely racially entrenched the criminal legal system, right? How is it um, that we can have a city that is run by Black people that's what well, used to be majority Black people um, and still have the same problems that everyone else has? And I think that what really comes, what we know um, is that this is how we think about institutional racism, right? Mm-hmm. When I first as a clinical student in law school, walked into DC Superior Court, which is the equivalent of our Court of Common Pleas, I walked into a courtroom and everyone was black. The judge was black. The defendant was black. The prosecutor was black. The U.S. Marshal, which is the equivalent of our deputies here, was black. The court reporter was black. The court clerk was black. Every person in the courtroom was black. And I thought, well, hot damn, here we are. Finally, a place where somebody (laughs) might get some justice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned out it was the same old, same old, right? And so that is how... Um, when we think about institutional racism, that's how that's how you know that institutional racism exists because you can walk mm-hmm. into a courtroom where every person is black, and still or into a courthouse right where half the judges on the um, trial court are black, where 
um, many, many, many um, people who are decision makers are black and end up in the same situation. Um, and so even though I love DC, it is not free of its problems. It's mm-hmm. young people are um, beautiful and resilient. Um, and when I first started practicing there, I had no idea what any of them were saying. And I used to, <laughs> <laughs> um, when you, so you get an, a lawyer immediately upon arraignment when you're arrested in DC. And so you go to the cell block um, and you talk to people before their first arraignment. And so you do these little cell block interviews. And when I first moved, I mean, when I first started working, I used to write down everything phonetically, all the slang words. And then I would go back <laughs> to my office like, what is this kid talking to me about, right? But now I know all the DC lingo. I'm down. I'm, I'm cool. Um, but when I first moved there, I used to be like, I don't know what anyone here is saying. Although I'm getting far afield. We'll come back in one second. They do say size. They're the only mm-hmm. other city that I know of that says size. Right. Wow. So mm-hmm. that's just a little detour. All right. So let me tell you, though, what I think DC does right and what I hope to lessons um, that I hope to bring here. First of all, they don't use a cash bail system. And I'm the only candidate in the race, as far as I know, I have not talked to all 39 of these people, but as far as I know, I'm the only candidate in the race um, who has, who has practiced in a system without cash bail um, on a day in day out basis. And so um, there's this bail statute in DC looks at a lot of um, factors around priors pending and um, whether you're a flight risk and they use those things to make a determination about whether you'll be released pre-trial. And if you are not released pre-trial, there are automatic systems for the number of days before you see a judge again to have that situation reviewed and to see if there's now a set of conditions or combination of conditions that can assure your return to court in the community safety. And so when we talk a lot, everybody in this race has talked about reforming cash bail eliminating cash bail. When we talk about those things, I'm somebody who comes to the table with an idea of language and statutory um, provisions that we can start using immediately. And until we can change the law in Pennsylvania, I'm somebody who has a solid set of standards that as a judge, I can look at to determine um, conditions of release. Um, And so DC does have that right. The other thing I really bring from D.C. with me is as a public defender, the office there used a holistic representation model. We had social workers. We had civil attorneys. We had a whole host of people trying to look at problems 360, as you said, root causes. What are the things that brought our clients to the system? And yes, they're here for the case that brings them to the office. But let's see if we can solve as many of the other problems as we can to try to stop our clients from coming back into the system. Um, And I brought that model, I started that model some at the public defender's office um, here, but I've created that model from the ground up at the law school and in the clinic. Um, And I intend to bring that model with me to the bench. If I'm elected, we will have social worker interns in my chambers. We will have school psychology interns if I'm in juvenile court and we're working with young people we will have the interns in chambers to continue to bring that holistic view um, to the to the the bench. Wow, that's that was that was such a robust 
uh, response. I'm I'm so grateful to have asked that question. Yeah, for real to to be able to get that information. But thank you so much for for providing that that much detail. Um, that really speaks to your qualifications and your experience um, for for being a candidate for for Court of Common Pleas. That was that was dope. Thank you. Yeah, I I'm always yeah, happy to talk that. about DC. <laughs> <laughs> no, <doubt. laughs> no, and I think what's also important too, because oftentimes I think we get so caught up in what's been happening here and not thinking outside the box, like, yeah, we have a way of doing things here, but there's other cities, there's other places that might have better processes that can be applied here um and better serve uh better serve our communities because as we always say, like if we keep doing the same things over and over, we and expecting a different result, like mm-hmm. who, who's the one that's you know insanity. So I, with that about um, with DC, uh, I really want to kind of just let's get into the school to prison pipeline because I think um, I'm really interested in the work that you do at the clinic at uh, Duquesne Law and. Um, from my experience of serving on school board with only, uh, in, in Wilkinsburg, we have two elementary schools, but yeah. I can't lie, my, my most difficult meetings were expulsion meetings and um, conversations about young people who are not even in middle school um, and, and making decisions of expulsion when, when things happen that, in my opinion, don't necessarily require those kind of decisions. Um, and then how those kind of choices then can put those kids into other predicaments because now we're pulling them out of the school too. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about that work that you do with the clinic and, and how you're um, representing young people um, in that space? Yeah, so um, our sort of like informal model of the clinic is we try to keep kids in school and out of jail. Um, and that's a data-based model really because we know that when kids experience even a single day of school exclusion, it increases their chances of getting involved with the juvenile legal system. Um, and one, one, just one interaction with the juvenile legal system increases a child's chances of being um, more involved, having another involvement with the system. So if we can stop kids from being out of school in the first place, we can really make a, a dent in the school to prison pipeline, right? But um, that's, easier said than done. Um, As you said, Ashley, um, you know, in in Pennsylvania, the lower age of prosecution for juvenile court is 10. Um, But really what we see oftentimes is schools through um, special education, through IEP um, um, written plans, and for our general ed students through discipline, we see them tracking kids for the school to prison pipeline. We see them setting kids up for prosecution from before the age of 10 by writing into their plans and by writing into their discipline records, all of those coded racialized words that people use for young black children, right? That they are being um, verbally threatening, that they're being violent, that they're being oppositional, Mm. that they're being Mm -hmm. defiant, that they, um, are doing things that are um, 
actually a normative adolescent or child behavior and b um, are the same behaviors that their white counterparts are engaging in but are not being characterized in that way and so um, this is again this isn't my opinion this is this is all data-based um, information and it's the reality of what I see every day as a practitioner right I represented a very cute little six-year-old um, girl who had a discipline report written up saying that she had sprayed a chemical on an adult. So when we went to school for a meeting, you know, I'm sort of like, okay, what, you know, what happened? Turns out she was being forced into the office for something she never should have been there for. But she took, you know, um, those cans of air that you use to clean your keyboard Mm-hmm. Yeah, she sprayed one of those at a school police officer, which, as we know, is not a chemical um, in any wow. way. It's literally air. Um, and they said that she had sprayed a chemical at the police officer and they handcuffed her wow. and they put her in the back of a car, mm-hmm. a six year old uh, kindergartner. And, you know, uh, they couldn't arrest her. They couldn't charge her. So, like, I don't know where they thought this was process was going um they kept her there until her mother came but the next day that baby told her mother I'm a bad person that's why they put me in the police car right mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do to unring that bell in that child's head that experience that she had um and so it's just the way that schools track children from the youngest of ages um and they um sort of put them on this path to juvenile court. And so we tried really hard um, to advocate forcefully for the removal of all of that type of language, both from school discipline records and from special education records. If a child needs to be disciplined in the school context, then it doesn't, you don't need to use that language. You can use mm-hmm. developmentally appropriate language or what I always say, why, don't say threatening, just say the words, write the words, what, write whatever the child said as a quote, and then let people draw their own characterizations from that instead mm-hmm. of putting your subjective opinion on what's happening with that, with that child. Because that's where wow. we have those implicit racism and explicit racist ideas coming in that's where we have that sort of tracking happening um and then on the the delinquency side once kids are in court we try really hard obviously to fight charges um and to fight them being adjudicated delinquent which requires a finding by the judge that the kid actually needs to be on probation so we try to fight that finding all the time because a judge can find actually that a child did a, a thing um, did whatever they were accused of, but the judge has to make a second finding of whether they're in need of, of probation. And we argue frequently that this child doesn't actually need services, right? Because just because a kid gets into a 30 second school fight doesn't mean they need to be on probation. Right. Um, <laughs> maybe they need detention or maybe they need to go to mediation with the person they were fighting with in school. Right. Mm -hmm. But what they don't need is a probation officer, because that is how you stigmatize children and make them believe that things that they are doing, again, that are normal adolescent behavior are crimes or that they're, you know, I when you hear um, 12 and 13 and in D.C., they prosecuted kids as young as eight. um, You hear a 10 and 11 year old say, I caught my first case. What does I mean, that's like. That's a problem. And people yeah. just 
I think people within the system are so desensitized to it that they don't even pick up on the trauma of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it mean that you're 10 or 11 and you have a case and you might be living in a house with your 19 or 20 year old brother who's on probation or parole, who's on an anklet, right? Like, what are we doing? We're criminalizing entire families. Um, And that's just not okay. And, and part of why I'm running is because we have to put a stop to it. These things will not stop until people who are thoughtful, um, intellectual, caring decision makers are put into these positions. And the synergy there between school board, right? For example, school boards have to ratify every expulsion that is you know, a principal doesn't just say you're expelled. There has to be yeah. a hearing. You're entitled to due process. There's a hearing officer or a smaller portion of the board that hears the expulsion hearing, yeah. but the full board has to vote up or down on that final expulsion. When we yeah. have people who are on school boards who are saying, no, we're not expelling this kid. Guess what? The expulsion stopped, but you can't have one person. You need to have a critical mass. You need to have yeah. a majority on that yeah. school board, um, you know, and when county council is passing laws for police oversight boards, then you have to have people on county council who are following through with actually holding police officers accountable, right? Okay. And, and making sure that the board has teeth. And so um, there are races all up and down the ballot that matter, right? When you have mayors, mayors pick police chiefs, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, having a police chief who's say who's saying to the school, I ain't coming <laughs> to arrest this kid. So right. find something else to do, right? That right. matters. Um, yeah. And so that's why all of these positions really work in synergy with one another. It's not just, oh, the court or, oh, the school board or, oh, the mayor. It's all of the above. <sighs> yep. That's it. I mean, even just hearing you talk about that with with the expulsion hearings of school board. I mean, there were a few where I was oftentimes the only one voting no, because in my opinion, in a school district where you only go up to sixth grade, there is nothing in my opinion that a sixth grader can do that should end in their expulsion. Literally, I've, I've yet to see it. You know, and I've seen some wild things that yeah. kids do, but also, like you said, they're, they're kids. And oftentimes it's something that they may have seen from a parent that they just need to be kind of educated on and really understand what it is that they're doing instead of us putting, like you said, our adult um, perceptions on this particular action and then creating this false narrative about these young people that travels with them through their school-age years. Um, exactly. Travels with them throughout their whole career. When you're mm-hmm. writing an IEP for a kid in kindergarten, every year there's a summary of what happened the year before in that IEP. This is not just like, oh, this only matters for this year and it, and then no one's ever going to see this again. These things are cumulative through their whole career. And um, we can't, ha- we just can't afford to allow our young people to continue to be um, dehumanized and criminalized in this way. It's, it's, we have people of conscience have to stand up and do something about it. And May 18, I'm an all of the above, I'm protest, I'm vote, I'm all of the above. Um, but we have to continue to do all of the above to speak out and, um, and, uh, 
stop this criminalization. And I um I I must say I'm I'm appreciating this conversation um, because I feel like especially now candidates kind of have like almost like a stump speech kind of thing going where there's like an expectation of certain questions and then I I you know I mean there's there's these kind of answers that are given but like I feel like what you're providing is like true to life like I did this I saw this I fought against this you know like we tried this this worked this may not have worked like like I just keep saying it but the experience is there with you you know right. um and and I think that's extremely important um, and another thing that Ashley touched on is, is your work at Duquesne University right now um, as, a, as a professor. And, you know, like I was just reading your bio, it's 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 no question that you you are deserving of one of these nine seats. You know what I mean? With the Allegheny County Court of Common Pleas. Um, and like right now, there's not a question with this, but I just feel like we have to punch this in there for people that are listening to this, you know? Um, but I, I also wanna give you an opportunity to, to share, um, we talked about the School of Prison Pipeline, but what are some other things that you wanna focus on? What are some other things that you want to bring about or change or create um, when you become judge? So um, as I talked about earlier, I'm really interested in Indian cash bail in Pennsylvania. That has nothing to do with juvenile court because thankfully we don't um, impose cash bail on kids in Pennsylvania, although there are some states that do. Um, but um, we, um, I would like to end cash bail. I would like to, um, I support, um, I, you know, we're not allowed to endorse other candidates, but I support Mick Pappas's plan to close the Allegheny County Jail. Um, I'm a strong supporter of um, uh, community-based programming. We know that it works for adults and for young people. We know that when people are, are best served, those who need services, because again, I will say the courtroom is flooded with people who actually don't need to be there. The courthouse um, is flooded with people that don't actually need to be there. But of those who do need to be there and who truly do need service services, um, I support community-based programming strongly because the data supports community-based programming. People are best served by services when they can receive the work and do the treatment in their own community. Putting people in artificial, first of all, incarcerating people has its own set of dehumanization and problematic um, circumstances. But putting people, even if we could create sort of some perfect space away from the community, um, treatment doesn't work like that. I think people need treatment in real life environments where they can go home, process these lessons um, in coordination with what they're gonna see every day. Putting a kid or an adult at a jail or a placement for two years and saying, here, do this workbook, learn this curriculum, and then opening the door and saying, now go back and apply it to the same house you left, the same neighborhood you left, the same whatever, um, I don't think is actually helpful. And really, it's just sort of common sense, right? People need um, community-based programming, but also I really want to expand the community service providers we use. What I see is that there are too many cookie cutter programs. Um, they don't have differences for people with disabilities. They don't have differences or respect for um, LGBTQIA plus folks. 
Um, they don't account for cultural differences. Um, and I know that there's some great community programs out here that I've worked with um, and that I know about who would be willing to provide services to people. But there's sort of this like, you know, shadowy, not shadowy, but this very um, out of the public light contract system with our probation department, both in juvenile court and in adult court. And we need to get our, our um, grassroots community programs in there to provide services as well. Um, and so I think that's something else that I think about a lot. Another thing I think about a lot is um, expanding um, restorative practices. So I really, we have actually, I've met several times with the people from the Vin Victim Offender Dialogue um, program in Allegheny County. They are so awesome, but their program, they'll tell you their program is underused. People are, you know, court judges, probation officers, whoever are not using it or not referring people the way that they should. And I think that a truly like a helpful professionally mediated conversation can help in a variety of cases, aside from whether there's going to be a conviction or not. We need to be able to have healing conversations with one another. And I think that they can be used even at the highest level of cases, even in homicide cases, for example, where we know that it's unlikely that somebody will be able to get a probationary sentence. We're lo really looking at prison sentences if someone's convicted of a homicide for the most part. But that doesn't mean that if the victim, um, the victim's family, the decedent's family and the, and the defendant are willing to come to the table, especially in some like neighborhood violence cases, that doesn't mean that they can't have a conversation that will jumpstart meaningful healing for both um, parts of the equation. Um, yeah. We know far too often that one day somebody is a defendant in court, the next day they might be a victim right? Um, especially when it comes to neighborhood violence and most, yeah. you know, most violence in the United States of America, um, I guess mass shootings is the big um, exception, is by people who know each other. <laughs> um, and so contrary to the, you know, um, trope of Black on Black crime, most violence is intraracial, most violence is people who know one another. Um, yeah. And so we need to be able to have um, these conversations to allow meaningful healing. Incarceration does not lead to meaningful healing. It just doesn't. It may make a person feel good in the moment that this person is getting their just desserts, but in the long term, it's not going to provide what is needed. And I'm somebody who's been, you know, a victim. I'm somebody whose friends and family members have been murdered in these streets just mm -hmm. like so many other Black people in the city. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't make it hurt less. Um, and it doesn't help oh. me to have meaningful psychological and spiritual healing that somebody else is sitting in a cage. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm a proponent of expanding victim-offender dialogue um, to all kinds of cases. Yeah, I mean, that's, I hate to use this word because I feel like it's such a buzzword, but this is really what folks are talking about when we talk about reimagining what it looks like, you know, to really bring public safety, you know, to our communities. And I agree with you 100% that locking people up doesn't fix anything, you know, it is, you know, it's such a temporary, in my opinion, um, solution. And oftentimes after someone is locked up, they're going to go back, 
because there's damage that's done inside those buildings, not, not healing for the people that are in there for whatever it is that they're in there for. And then for the folks who are outside, it's like, one, we're paying for it. And two, like, we, like you said, we haven't healed or, or, or had any kind of um, true understanding to fixing the issues that our communities face because prison hasn't been the answer. Um, like you said, I've, I'm, as, as someone in my community, I've lost family members to uh, community violence. I have had family members addicted to drugs and you know those kind of decisions have, have sent them into prison. But when they come out, it, what did prison do? And so I think we've, yeah, we've got to start having these conversations because um, we can't just keep, we can't keep the status quo because it's literally killing us. Mm-hmm. Um, and your point about the county jail, <sighs> I feel like this past year, what I have seen and heard and, and read about with the county jail, people don't recognize ma- the majority of the people in our county jail haven't even been convicted of a crime. Exactly. So they are in there being treated, even if they did commit a crime, they're being treated like they don't matter. And that doesn't that just doesn't fix the problems that we have. And it, I did, um, it's been, you know, we're in this pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, I would do um, presents for prisoners uh, at the county jail. And, you know, Pittsburgh is pretty, you know, you're one person removed. And, you know, every year I would do that of all the pods in the county jail. Every year I would run into someone that I knew in one of the pods that I visited and the people who they are, they didn't need to be in there. There was no, there was nothing that they had done that required them to be housed in that prison. And um, one, one man, I know that that has negatively impacted his life. And the other one, I think it was something like child support or something. And it was like an error. It was just, it was just really, really problematic. And people don't see it that way. And in addition to the people that I I ran into, just going into the county jail for that and interacting with the people, like they're people, you know, like they aren't these big, scary, like, Right. I don't know. Like it's right. just it's it. We've got to change that narrative because it's the narrative that's created, and then it makes me think about these young people with these IEPs and these these coded language words used to create a narrative that keeps the system going. And I don't understand. Yeah, I'm not like a. Yeah, it's hard for me to understand because, like you said, many, especially in um, a, a city like Pittsburgh, which has a, a really high percentage of, of working class, working poor people, uh, people know people who are in ACJ, okay? So you might want to not say it or whatever, but the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is people know people who are down there. You know that these are, you know, regular guys and, and women um, who are down there and who don't need to be there, who we can set conditions of supervision for pre-trial if there are, if there are concerns um, about their 
return to court or about safety concerns um, and we can let people be in the community. It does not make the community safer when someone is locked up, they lose their house, they lose their car, they lose their job, they lose their kids, they lose mm-hmm. their family. Um, and then, you know, six months later when the probation detainer gets lifted or uh, the case gets dropped down to a summary or you get found not guilty or you plead out, you get probation and you come home and your life is in shambles. Yeah, That does not make the community safer. It actually makes mm-hmm. it much more likely that that person is right. going to reoffend. Like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really, <laughs> it's like, again, th- this is a data driven um, discussion point, but also doesn't it make common sense? Doesn't it make common sense, right? right, That like this person's not going to be in the best frame of mind when you come home and you have nothing all Mm -hmm. because you were waiting for a court date. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mean, that's crazy. And the people who have been there during this, during COVID unable to get trials and I understand, believe me, I understand it is scary. I've been in the house for the greater part of the last 13 months. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just like we the conditions there are completely unacceptable but even if they were it was clean and people were getting edible food or whatever we're still housing human beings in cages who have been convicted of nothing nothing um and who are just waiting for their day in court and we are releasing those who just happen to have enough money um, to be able to post bond or make a deal with a bail bondsman to um, get out. Yeah. And so this is, you know, it's not, it, cash bail doesn't do what it promises to do. And that mm-hmm. is at the end of the day, what people need to know. Whew. Listen, Tiffany, talk about it. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, my experiences of going into court were from a juvenile perspective. Like I said, when I was a case manager working with young girls um, who were going through, oh my goodness. I mean, even if we get to that point, when we talk about pulling children out of their homes, like when we're talking about sending adults into the county jail, or sometimes when kids are pulled out of their homes for whatever the case may be, those were never the best solutions, you know, like there were oftentimes there were young girls in the shelter that ultimately their family and their homes just needed some support. And if they had the support that they needed in the home, we wouldn't even be here in the first place. Um, again, spending money on these young people, on these uh, adults in the county jail, um, and people are making money off of it. So it's really not about the um, fixing and make, helping people be better it's really about a profitable system. And so we need to have people in positions of power to truly bring um, uh, healing at the end of the day. Theoretically, you're not even getting real services in in the jail when you're pre-trial because again, you're not convicted of anything. So, I mean, this is all theoretical because we know in reality that, you know, most of these programs inside are, are not, you know, 
doing what they promised to do. But Mm -hmm. even theoretically, after you're convicted, if you are serving a prison sentence, at least on some level, you're getting up every day and walking to a program and engaging in some sort of, you know, curriculum or something. And you're not even getting any services, right? So if you're a person Mm -hmm. there who is suffering from addiction or is suffering from mental health issues, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not even getting what you need. Right. So we're just literally warehousing and caging people um, and we're not even providing the most basic of, you know, well, here's a, you know, a mental health program you can start or here's an AA meeting you can go to or NA meeting while you're waiting for your kid. Like we're not even doing that. So, Mm -hmm. again, I could release the person with the condition that, you know, you are going to AA at least once a week while we're mm-hmm. waiting for your case to uh, go mm-hmm. to trial, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you could at least be, or even if the, I don't require it, they at least have the opportunity to access it. They mm-hmm. don't have that opportunity at the jail. You can't yeah. get go to your counselor's office and say, hey, can I call into an AA meeting today? Yeah. I'm in here, I'm sober, I might as well try to engage. You think they that's a possibility? No, of course it's not no. a possibility, right? Yeah. And so we can at least be thinking about how to, um, again, keep people in the community where they can get what they need um, while they're waiting for their case to, to be processed. Mm-hmm. I, um, Man. Go ahead, yeah, no, um, one thing that you talked about, Ash, was about juvenile, um, juvenile legal system. And I saw that you were appointed to Governor Wolf's um, Juvenile Justice Task Force. Can you talk a little bit about that task force? Um, I see that you know, you're, you're uh, charged to uh, propose some needed reforms. Um, can you talk a little bit about that task force? Yeah, so we're right, actually, at the end of the process. Um, I was appointed in 2019. And um, so the task force is made up of many, um, a few dozen people, all sorts of stakeholders. There's two judges, including our president, Judge Kim, um, Kim Barkley-Clark is a member. There's another judge from Lehigh County. Um, our chief probation officer from juvenile court, um, Russell Carlino, is on the task force. Our head of, of the juvenile DA's division, um, Megan Black, is on the task force. I'm on the task force. Um, so there's several Allegheny County people, but there's people from Department of Ed, um, state level Department of Ed, um, there's lots of legislators, including four co-chairs. Jay Costa is one of the co-chairs. Um, there's people from Department of Human Services, people from victim advocate organizations, excuse me, <clears throat> people from um, all sorts of sectors. Um, and they, we have been sitting together for a year. Um, the first part of the process was listening to the data from Pew. Pew um, Charitable Trust is the convener on the task force. Um, so first we listened to specific Pennsylvania data about our juvenile legal system, who gets charged, what they're getting charged with, and what their um, case outcomes are. Then we listened to subject matter experts about adolescent brain development um, and um, the social science around basically how kids behave. Um, and then we listen to many, many stakeholder groups, every sort of stakeholder you could think, parents, kids, POs, judges, um, program placement providers, all sorts of stakeholder groups. And then we ourselves broke into subgroups and worked on different parts of the system 
and proposed reforms. Some of those reforms are policy reforms. Some of those are like regulation reforms, like um, the regulations that oversee the placements our kids are in. And some of those are uh, legislative reforms, right? We should change the law to say X. Um, and um, then the subgroups came back together, but their recommendations to the full task force, we um, talked and sometimes argued about um, what came out of the subgroups. And now we are on the final step, which is that we're about to vote on the, the final list of reforms. Um, and there's going to be an up or down vote. Um, and then those votes, the reforms will all be placed into a report and they will be listed by those on which there's unanimity, those on which there's consensus, and those on which there is um, minority support. Um, and then I assume that the report will look very, very fancy um, since Governor Wolf is paying for it. Uh, and then next legislative year, um, the PA legislature, legislature is supposed to take up the task force um, reform list and get to work on it. So mm -hmm. that's sort of like the quick and dirty of it. Um, <laughs> I would awesome. say that um, the big sort of things for me are that there's some recommendations around diverting most school cases. There's some recommendations around diverting most misdemeanors, whether they're in school or not. Um, and that the big one is to end direct file. So right mm -hmm. now in Pennsylvania, if you're 15 or older, 15, 16 or 17, and you are arrested or charged on the street with um, certain felony armed offenses, you are treated as an adult from that moment. You're directly filed into the county jail and you're treated as an adult um, arraignment, preliminary hearing. And then some months down the road, you're able to ask an adult court judge to send you back to juvenile court through a hearing process called decertification. Um, and that judge says yes or no. And if they say no, then you you proceed to continue to be treated as an adult um, and you can be sentenced um, to as much as life without parole as a child. Um, and so um, the process that we propose, which in my opinion does not go far enough, but what it does say is that um, all kids will be treated as kids from the moment of arrest all kids will be charged as juveniles and then it will be up to the DA's office to, if they want to transfer the child, um, to file the motion to transfer and those hearings will all be held in juvenile court by juvenile judges who know kids and um, the law around kids, the services that juvenile court has to offer best. Um, and so... I believe that our final um, version has a carve out for murder, which I do not support. I actually don't support charging kids as adults, period. But um, it has a carve out for murder, which I don't support. And it might have a carve out for maybe armed rape. I don't know. I think maybe a carve out for armed rape. So ultimately, I'm probably going to vote yes for that. But I, I just want to be clear that I don't think we should be charging children as adults. I think there's an overwhelming ocean of evidence that it's not helpful. It destroys lives. It's not, you know, I mean, like cash bail, it's sort of one of those things that doesn't do what it promises to do. Um, and in fact, causes serious destruction. So um, 
I am really proud of the work that the task force has done. It has not always been easy. It is um, this policy work that I've done for many years, task force and other things is not easy. It is tedious. It's hard to sit around with people who you are ideologically um, different from and sometimes directly opposed to on what should happen, but still have to craft language and still have to come out with a finished product. That is the work of consensus building. Um, and that is why I have said throughout this election, yes, everyone knows this is a reform election. Every candidate, they're all lawyers. Everybody's, you know, smart. They can Google this stuff. They can do a crash course. But if you haven't been working at it, if you haven't been doing this, you're, there's no reason to believe you're going to get a, a job that has little to no public oversight accountability and you're going to start diving into this work. Like, there's no reason to believe that, right? Like, you really needed yeah. to have been doing this work mm -hmm. all along and have an appetite for it, especially when you get to the table and there's people who are like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, you know, and the task force was no exception. And so um, you really need people, if we really want change, we need people who have been engaged in working on system change. Um, not just now, not just talking about it, but actually doing it. Oh, that, I mean, you kind of already started on to like what I was going to try to pull out of you was like, I want you to tell like the people who are listening to this episode, um, what, what, for lack of better terms, like your stump speech, like I want you to let the people know why. Allegheny County needs a Tiffany Sizemore on our Court of Common Pleas bench. And you've already started on to like the work that you're already in, but what it means for our, for, for this uh, reform that we can have and why you are a part of that change that's needed. So I just want to give you that time to like, take some more fire. Yeah, so what I really think is that the reason you need me is because I'm somebody who is already engaged in this work. I'm somebody who's deeply versed in this work. I'm somebody who built a legal services program from scratch, so I understand this work on a 360 level, okay? So just on an intellectual level, I'm someone who's more than capable and ready for the job. I've tried every single case that there is to try from the least serious to the most serious, um, I've spent my entire career standing next to individuals in courtrooms and classrooms fighting for their rights. And so I understand the laws and I understand the policy and I'm ready on day one to handle a caseload. But you should also vote for me because I'm a Black woman with a heavy diversity of lived experience. Um, I have not told my whole story, um, but I'm somebody who um, has really um, experienced, quote unquote, both Pittsburghs, as they say, right? And um, I'm somebody who understands not just what it is, but what it can be. Um, I'm, I'm a regular person. I'm a regular Black woman from the city. And I think that's really important on the bench because that's not, um, you know, Judge Clark is amazing and she's also somebody from the city. Um, but we need more Black yeah. women on the bench. Yeah. Um, we need more people with a diversity of lived experience, not the people who went to the same old schools, came in the same old neighborhoods and have no um, 
desire to change what is wrong. Um, I've spent my whole career working for change and I will continue to spend the rest of my career working for change from the bench if you elect me, period. Mm, period. Y'all period. hear that? <laughs> period. <laughs> period. Well, before oh, we man. before we wrap, we um we end our episodes with what we call it a lightning round, which is just some questions about about you. Um, so my first question, well, not before we get to a question, it's like a two-part question, right? So okay. um I saw that you attended Winchester Thurston. In, in Pittsburgh. Um, so, and I also learned that you're a board of trustee for Winchester Thurston. I am. Um, which is major. That's so dope. So I'm, I'm just curious, like how, how is the feeling from like being a student at this school to now being a board of trustees at, at that school? Like what's, how is that? <laughs> how is that kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really curious. I was like, y'all want me on the board? I'm sure I caused some <laughs> trouble when I was here. Uh, that's how I really, I was like, did y'all research not just like Tiffany now, but Tiffany from 1991 to 95. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, it is, it's, amazing um and it's humbling and i love winchester um it is absolutely unabashedly the best of the pittsburgh privates um i think it is um we fall down as everyone falls down but we are committed to racial justice issues it's located in a place where winchester students can really engage with the city um and um i uh i love being a board trustee i'm willing to talk to anybody at any time about why they should send their kids to winchester um we always need more students of color we always need more students from diverse neighborhoods and background and winchester really backs up its commitment to good financial aid packages for students who um otherwise wouldn't able to be afford to be there um i would not be who i am without winchester period mm-hmm. and i owe them so much full oh, stop wow. um and so i'm really really um i'm glad to have gone there i'm a proud alum uh and i am um really proud of the work that they that they do around racial justice and racial equity mm-hmm. thank yeah. you for that so um so we're talking about you tiffany at winchester thurston so on the way to school, what was, what was the, what was the mixtape? What was the, cause there was still consistent. So what was you listening to? Like what, what was, what was Tiffany's playlist on the way to Winchester? Like, um, mostly it was NPR because my mom's a teacher. So she drove me to school every day. <laughs> and so I'm like, it's a mix of NPR and speech and lecturing from my mother about getting my life together and my behavior together. Um, but, um, you know, on the way home, I used to get more freedom. Um, so I'm definitely a nineties, uh, hip hop fan, obviously all the Pac, all the Biggie, um, all the little Kim. Um, and then I'm also was, um, the nineties was actually an amazing decade for music. So, um, also a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, Nirvana, um, throw some Madonna in there and some great nineties house. I was Mm -hmm. heavy on the rave scene in this city in the nineties. So, okay. Yeah. Jungle Pittsburgh was home of some of the best jungle music in this city, in the rave scene in the country. So, that's wow. dope. 
That's yeah. an awesome mix too. Like that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's eclectic. That's definitely what's up. So um as we as we close out, um, we want to make sure people know where they can find you at. Um, so please let everybody know where they can find you online. Uh, vote Tiffany That's the website on Facebook, Friends of Tiffany Sizemore. So those are our two um online presences. Um, Vote Tiffany Sizemore is where you can find out how to get involved with the campaign. On our Facebook is where we have like updates about all our events and we are still doing events. We'll be doing events uh, all the way up until the last day and we'll be at the polls all day on May 18th. So um, this Friday... I was about to say that. What's, what's happening this at, Friday? Um, so there's two events. There's a slate of eight event that I want to say is that Spirit Uh, in Lawrenceville and there's also you can catch me with one of my favorite candidates in the race Demetrius Baldwin um who will be um at Stanley's and Homewood um guest bartending um so there will be myself will be there supporting Demetrius and some other judicial candidates are going to stop through um maybe some other members of the slate um, definitely some African-American candidates, judicial candidates are going to swing through. Um, and then, so I'll be at, I'll be, I'll be out, I'll be partying for the cause on Friday night. So <laughs> that's where you might find a, um, a, a great, friendly, not worn out version. <laughs> 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 we might have to try to uh, make that one, see if we could get a babysitter for Bellamy on Friday. That sounds like a good time. Um, I was going about to say, uh, the yeah, the split because it's an open mic night, right? There's some good yes. performance that's going to be happening at Spirit. I, you know, I'm getting all the notifications because I'm I'm an admin on one of those pages. So yeah, I was looking at the details, so that looks super cool. And um, we're going to get this episode up tomorrow because it's awesome. past, you know. Uh, so we definitely want to make sure we let folks know what they could be doing this weekend. Um, Saturday will be at the at whatever the um slate of eight canvases on Saturday. I'll be there. Um, it is at Allegheny Commons East at ten thirty, and I'll also be at the One Hood Get Out the Vote rally. I think it's in East Liberty. Um, so I'll be at both of those on Saturday as well. Okay. All right. That's where y'all can find Tiffany, y'all. Make sure you get out to vote. Um, the one thing that I did also want to mention before we wrap up this episode, especially because Tiffany brought up some stuff about the county jail, there are two local ballot referendums that are happening. So for the county, you want to vote yes on the ballot in regards to the conditions in the Allegheny County Jail. It is ultimately going to virtually ban solitary confinement. So vote yes. And if you are a city of Pittsburgh resident, There is also a referendum for the city of Pittsburgh police officers to ban no-knock warrants. So we do not um, have any instances in our community um, that unfortunately happened to Breonna Taylor. Uh, We have seen things like that happen too much. And yes, the city of Pittsburgh has stated that they do not ban no-knock warrants, that they do not do no-knock warrants. But what we know is that that is false because we personally know folks who have experienced it in the city of Pittsburgh. So make sure you also vote yes. Vote yes to ban those, uh, ban no-knock warrants and to stop solitary confinement in the county jail. Um, Two really, really important um, referendums that the people put on the ballot, y'all. That took 
people power to make this happen. So we cannot let that fall on the wayside. And as always, I'm gonna let Martel give all of the tags for BPM because he remembers them. <laughs> so you can check us on Instagram, Black Political Millennials, Facebook, Black Political Millennials, uh, email BPM Podcast 412 at gmail.com. And please check out all of our previous episodes um, with potential candidates for this upcoming primary. Uh, we're on Anchor FM. Apple Play, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, and anywhere else that there's podcasts, we there. Uh, so make sure you check us out, Black Political Millennials. Once again, Tiffany Sizemore, uh, Allegheny you. County Court of Common, please. Battle yes. position number five. Yes, so, Tiffany, don't forget happen. it. That's the one. <laughs> it's been a happen. pleasure, y'all. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, everybody. You. Thank you.